Chapter Twenty Eight of the Life of Honorable William F. Cody. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Barry Eads. The Life of Honorable William F. Cody by William F. Cody. Chapter Twenty Eight. An Actor. During the summer and fall of eighteen seventy-two, I received numerous letters from Ned Buntline, urging me to come east and go upon the stage to represent my own character. There's money in it, he wrote and you will prove a big card, as your character is a novelty on the stage. At times I almost determined to make the venture, but the recollection of that night when I stood on the stage of the Bowery Theatre, and was unable to utter a word above a whisper, would cause me to stop and think, and become irresolute. I feared that I would be a total failure, and wrote Buntline to that effect. But he insisted that I would soon get over all that embarrassment, and become accustomed to the stage, so that I would think no more of appearing before five thousand people than I would before half a dozen. He proposed to organize a good company, and wished me to meet him in Chicago, where the opening performance would be given. I remained undecided as to what I ought to do. The officers at the fort, as well as my family and friends, to whom I mentioned the matter, laughed at the idea of my ever becoming an actor. That I, an old scout, who had never seen more than twenty or thirty theatrical performances in my life, should think of going upon the stage, was ridiculous in the extreme, so they all said. A few days after my election to the legislature, a happy event occurred in my family circle, in the birth of a daughter whom we named Ora. About the same time I received another letter from Buntline, in which he requested me to appear on the stage for a few months as an experiment, and he said that if I made a failure, or did not like the business, I could easily return to my old life. My two sisters, who had been living with us, had married, Nellie to A. C. Jester, a cattleman, and May to Ed Bradford, a railroad engineer, and consequently left us, and my wife had been wishing for a long time to visit her parents in St. Louis. Taking these and other things into consideration, I finally resolved to resign my seat in the legislature, and try my luck behind the footlights. I informed General Reynolds of my determination, telling him at the same time that at the end of the month, November, I would resign my position under him. The general regretted to hear this, and advised me not to take the step, for I was leaving a comfortable little home where I was sure of making a good living for my family, while, on the other hand, I was embarking on a sea of uncertainty. Having once made up my mind, however, nothing could change it. While I was selling my horses and other effects, preparatory to leaving the fort, one of my brother scouts, Texas Jack, said that he would like to accompany me. Now, as Jack had also appeared as the hero in one of Ned Buntline's stories, I thought that he would make as good a star as myself, and it was accordingly arranged that Jack should go with me. On our way east we stopped in Omaha a day or two to visit General Auger and other officers, and also the gentlemen who were out on the Judge Dundee hunt. Judge Dundee and his friends gave a dinner party in my honor at the leading restaurant and entertained me very handsomely during my stay in the city. At Omaha I parted with my family, who went to St. Louis, while Jack and myself proceeded to Chicago. Ned Buntline and Mr. Milligan, having been appraised of our coming by a telegram, met us at the depot. Mr. Milligan accompanied us to the Sherman House, where he had made arrangements for us to be his guests while we remained in the city. I didn't see much of Buntline that evening, as he hurried off to deliver a temperance lecture in one of the public halls. The next day we met him by appointment, and the first thing he said was, "'Boys, are you ready for business?' "'I can't answer that,' replied I. 
for we don't know what we are going to do. It's all arranged, said he, and you'll have no trouble whatever. Come with me. We'll go and see Nixon, manager of the amphitheater. That's the place where we are to play. We'll open there next Monday night. Jack and myself accordingly accompanied him to manager Nixon's office without saying a word, as we didn't know what to say. Here we are, Mr. Nixon, said Buntline. Here are the stars for you. Here are the boys, and they are a fine pair to draw, too. Now, Nixon, I am prepared for business. Nixon and Buntline had evidently had a talk about the terms of our engagement. Buntline, it seems, was to furnish the company, the drama, and the pictorial printing, and was to receive sixty percent of the gross receipts for his share, while Nixon was to furnish the theater, the attaches, the orchestra, and the local printing, and receive forty percent of the gross receipts. "'I am ready for you, Buntline. Have you got your company yet?' asked Nixon. "'No, sir, but there are plenty of idle theatrical people in town, and I can raise a company in two hours,' was his reply. "'You haven't much time to spare if you open on Monday night,' said Dixon. "'If you will allow me to look at your drama, to see what kind of people you want, I'll assist you in organizing your company.' "'I have not yet written a drama,' said Buntline. "'What the deuce do you mean? This is Wednesday, and you propose to open on next Monday night?' "'The idea is ridiculous. "'Here you are at this late hour without a company and without a drama. "'This will never do, Buntline. "'I shall have to break my contract with you, "'for you can't possibly write a drama, cast it, "'and rehearse it properly for Monday night. "'Furthermore, you have no pictorial printing as yet. "'These two gentlemen, whom you have with you, "'have never been on the stage, "'and they certainly must have time to study their parts. "'It is preposterous to think of opening on Monday night, "'and I'll cancel the engagement.' This little speech was delivered in rather an excited manner by Mr. Nixon. Buntline said that he would write the drama that day, and also select his company and have them at the theater for rehearsal next morning. Nixon laughed at him, and said that there was no use of trying to undertake anything of the kind in so short a time. It was utterly impossible to do it. Buntline, whose ire was rising, said to Nixon, "'What rent will you ask for your theater for next week?' Six hundred dollars,' was the reply." Well, sir, I'll take your theater for next week at that price, and here is half of the amount in advance, said Buntline, as he threw down three hundred dollars on the stand. Nixon took the money, gave a receipt for it, and had nothing more to say. Now come with me, boys, said Buntline, and away we went to the hotel. Buntline immediately obtained a supply of pens, ink, and paper, and then engaged all the hotel clerks as penmen. In less than an hour after he had rented the theater, he was dashing off page after page of his proposed drama, the work being done in his room at the hotel. He then set his clerks at copying for him, and at the end of four hours he jumped up from the table and enthusiastically shouted, Hooray for the Scouts of the Plains! That's the name of the play. The work is done. Hurrah! The parts were then all copied off separately by the clerks, and handing us our respective portions, Buntline said, Now, boys, go to work and do your level best to have this dead letter perfect for the rehearsal, which takes place tomorrow morning at ten o'clock prompt. I want to show Nixon that we'll be ready on time. I looked at my part, and then at Jack, and Jack looked at his part, and then at me. Then we looked at each other, and then at Buntline. We did not know what to make of the man. How long will it take you to commit your part to memory, Bill? asked Jack. About six months, as near as I can calculate. How long will it take you? answered I. "'It will take me about that length of time to learn the first line,' said Jack. "'Nevertheless, we went to our room and commenced studying. "'I thought it was the hardest work I had ever done.' "'This is dry business,' finally remarked Jack. "'That's just what it is,' answered I. "'Jerk the bell, Jack.' "'The bell-boy soon appeared. 
we ordered refreshments after partaking thereof we resumed our task we studied hard for an hour or two but finally gave it up as a bad job although we had succeeded in committing a small portion to memory buntline now came into the room and said boys how are you getting along i guess we'll have to go back on this studying business as it isn't our forte said i don't weaken now bill you'll come out on the top of the heap yet let me hear you recite your part said buntline i began spouting what i had learned but was interrupted by buntline tut tut you're not saying it right you must stop at the queue queue what the mischief do you mean by the queue i never saw any queue except in a billiard room said i buntline thereupon explained it to me as well as to jack who was ignorant as myself concerning the queue business jack i think we had better back out and go to hunting again said i see here boys it won't do to go back on me at this stage of the game stick to it and it may be the turning point in your lives and lead you on to fortune and to fame a fortune is what we are after and will at least give the wheel a turn or two and see what luck we have said i this satisfied buntline but we didn't study any more after he left us the next morning we appeared at rehearsal and were introduced to the company the first rehearsal was hardly a success the succeeding ones were not much better the stage manager did his best to teach jack and myself what to do but when monday night came we didn't know much more about it than when we began the clock struck seven and then we put on our buckskin suits which were the costumes we were to appear in the theatre was being rapidly filled and it was evident that we were going to make our debut before a packed house as the minutes passed by jack and i became more and more nervous we occasionally looked through the holes in the curtain and saw that the people were continuing to crowd into the theatre our nervousness increased to an uncomfortable degree when at length the curtain arose our courage had returned so that we thought we could face the immense crowd yet when the time came for us to go on we were rather slow in making our appearance as we stepped forth we were received with a storm of applause which we acknowledged with a bow buntline who was taking the part of kale derg appeared and gave me the cue to speak my little piece but for the life of me i could not remember a single word buntline saw i was stuck and a happy thought occurred to him he said as if it were in the play where have you been bill what has kept you so long just then my eye happened to fall on mr milligan who was surrounded by his friends the newspaper reporters and several military officers all of whom had heard of his hunt and indian fight he being a very popular man and widely known in chicago so i said i have been out on a hunt with milligan this proved to be a big hit the audience cheered and applauded which gave me greater confidence in my ability to get through the performance all right buntline who is a very versatile man saw that it would be a good plan to follow this up and he said well bill tell us all about the hunt i thereupon proceeded to relate in detail the particulars of the affair i succeeded in making it rather funny and i was frequently interrupted by rounds of applause whenever i began to weaken buntline would give me a fresh start by asking some question in this way i took up fifteen minutes without once speaking a word of my part nor did i speak a word of it during the whole evening the prompter who was standing between the wings attempted to prompt me but it did no good for while i was on the stage i chipped in anything i thought of the scouts of the plains was an indian drama of course and there were between forty and fifty supers dressed as indians in the fight with them jack and i were at home we blazed away at each other with blank cartridges and when the scene ended in a hand-to-hand -hand encounter a general knockdown and drag out the way jack and i killed indians was a caution 
We would kill them all off in one act, but they would come up again ready for business in the next. Finally the curtain dropped, the play was ended, and I congratulated Jack and myself on having made such a brilliant and successful debut. There was no backing out after that. The next morning there appeared in the Chicago papers some very funny criticisms of our first performance. The papers gave us a better send-off than I expected, for they did not criticize us as actors. The Chicago Times said that if Buntline had actually spent four hours in writing that play, it was difficult for anyone to see what he had been doing all the time. Buntline, as Cal Durg, was killed in the second act, after a long temperance speech, and the Inter-Ocean said that it was to be regretted that he had not been killed in the first act. The company, however, was very good, and Mademoiselle Morlacci, as Pale Dove, particularly fine, while Miss Carfano spouted a poem of some seven hundred and three verses, more or less, of which the reader will be glad to know that I can only recall the words, I was born in March. Our engagement proved a decided success financially, if not artistically. Nixon was greatly surprised at the result, and at the end of the week he induced Buntline to take him in as a partner in the company. The next week we played at DeBar's Opera House in St. Louis, doing an immense business. The following week we were at Cincinnati, where the theater was so crowded every night that hundreds were unable to obtain admission. We met with equal success all over the country. Theatrical managers, upon hearing of this new and novel combination, which was drawing such tremendous houses, were all anxious to secure us, and we received offers of engagements at all the leading theaters. We played one week at the Boston Theater, and the gross receipts amounted to $16,200. We also appeared at Niblo's Garden, New York, the theater being crowded to its utmost capacity every night of the engagement. At the Arch Street Theater, Philadelphia, it was the same way. There was not a single city where we did not have crowded houses. We closed our tour on the 16th of June, 1873, at Port Jervis, New York, and when I counted up my share of the profits, I found that I was only about $6,000 ahead. I was somewhat disappointed, for judging from our large business, I certainly had expected a greater sum. Texas Jack and myself longed for a hunt on the western prairies once more, and on meeting in New York a party of gentlemen who were desirous of going with us, we all started westward, and after a pleasant trip arrived at Fort McPherson. End of chapter 28